10 years ago, I'm the guy who walking up the ladder from the arbitrator skill. Now, every deal I look, I start from the top because once you start from top, everything became a lot easier. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Really starting to get back into action this year. I've been spending the last week or so doing some promising due diligence on a couple of sites. So it's nice to be looking again and getting excited about the potential of a project. I have also been working on finalizing my book. I've been doing the last of the editing and proofing and that's almost done. So I'm looking forward to getting that out in the coming months. So I'll keep you posted about that. On my project, SiteWorks are continuing. I've got a meeting this week actually on site with the builder to review the works that they've done over the past month, so that'll be good. We've had fantastic weather in Melbourne over the summer, so it's been nice and dry, which is fantastic. And we should have the slabs down before the cooler weather sets in and things start to get a little bit more wet. Now, don't forget, before we move on to today's guest, that if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then be sure to check out my property developer training program, where you'll learn all you need to know to get started on your first small-scale development. If you want to make this the year that you're going to get started on your property development journey, then be sure to head over to www.propertydevelopertraining.com and check out everything that is in the course. And if you want to maybe know how ready you might be to become a property developer, then jump over to my free quiz at propertydevelopertraining.com forward slash quiz Take that quiz and find out how ready you might be. You might be surprised with the results. Also, don't forget, you can hook up with me on the various social networks where I tend to be active, which is Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. And just quickly before we get to today's guest, if you do like hearing about property developers and their story, then be sure to go back and have a listen to episode 75 where I spoke to architect and property developer Joe Adset. Joe had some great insight into not just following the crowd and being prepared to maybe be a little bit daring and a little bit dangerous. Here's some of what he had to say. Developers fall into two camps. There's really... um... Um, people who like to go out there and find gaps in the market and I call them pioneers and pioneering developers and I reckon um, maybe three and four out of four projects will work and be successful and the other quarter will tank and do poorly Um, and other developers will watch what other developers are doing and mimic or copycat or look at what they're doing and change it slightly to be successful Um, so there's really kind of two two ways of developing out there. Um, we really like to pioneer, and I like pioneering because you don't have any competition. Um, and when you don't have any competition, you can do whatever you want. You can market however you want. You can sell whatever prices you want. Now, what Joe was getting at when he said this was to not be afraid of trying something new. You don't just have to follow the crowd. You can carve your own path and deliver something fresh to the market. So be sure to go back and have a listen to episode 75 for more great insights into how you can stand out in a crowded market. Okay, on to today's guest, Lei Feng from Priya. Lei has a great story to share about how he has evolved from small-scale property developments 
to much larger projects like land subdivisions, medium density townhouse projects, and even the odd large apartment and tower development. We explore what Lay has learned along the way and discuss at length how developers can take their developing to the next level and what tends to hold them back from doing exactly that. We go over the skills and mindset that sets people apart that do go on to bigger and better things. And be sure to keep an ear out for the details on what Lay is doing to help developers accelerate their business growth and really elevate their game. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat with Lay and we kick things off by finding out what his dirty little food secret is. That's a great question. Um, I don't know, man. I like... I, I do have this tendency to eat junk food. Uh, and even though I did try to, you know, contend myself not to do it. And I would say, if you have a question, I would say KFC. <laughs> oh, the dirty bird. The dirty, the dirty burger. And, uh, and if you travel well enough around the world, you will realize different country uh, wise, the KFC have customized different manuals. So actually can test all the burgers and the, and the chicken wings taste very differently. Is that so? Yeah. My son's getting into KFC at the moment and we stopped off to get some somewhere beside a um, highway on the way on a trip <laughs> and they had sold out of the chicken tenders that he really wanted. Yeah, man, be careful. It can get really addictive. Every time I went there, I was just asking, like, I want a Zynga burger, but I kind of don't want the bread. I just want to fill it. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Well, I never thought I'd see the day when a chicken shop would run out of one of its chicken products. <laughs> Hope so. But there you go. So, Lay, we're here to talk about developing as usual, and you've got a really colourful and interesting history when it comes to property development. You've done all sorts of projects. You've started off doing smaller townhouse projects. You've escalated up the line um, doing large multiple unit developments, multiple projects at the same time. Um, so it's going to be really interesting talking to you today. But why don't you give us a bit of a sense of your developing history, how you got into developing? Yeah, sure. Look, my background is less dramatic compared to a lot of other people. So I was, I guess I have a, this unfair advantage when I was... Uh, you know, I started uni in Monash University. So I was kind of being a university student. So I was living in Clayton because that's what the campus is. So um, my family was also in the in the business of real estate. And they, you know, my dad is owning multiple business across different industry. So I guess at a very young age, I have this heavy involvement in terms into his business and understand how the real estate game works. Um, so I remember when I graduated from uni, uh, you know, uh, I was said to my dad, like, look, you know, I was trying to see if I can make the real estate as my career in Australia. So the unfair advantage come from family is I do have the family support, uh, means the capital. They do happy to lend me the seed capital, as we call it, uh, to sort of like, you know, allow me to muck around, I guess. So, um, you know, in about 13, 14 years ago, that's where my career starts. Um, when I get started, like everyone else's, the first step is really try to get to understand the space, right? From the very basic in terms of how to buy a property, general process, and all the way through about the development thing. I attend lots of different conferences like everyone else's to learn all sorts of different strategies that is very applicable just to Australia um, alone. Um Meanwhile, you know, everyone knows that uh, those conferences doesn't really get, uh, you know, helping you all the way to the end, but does give me a good idea on where to focus. Uh, more importantly, where to apply a different type of strategy, how the development works, etc. So I started the first thing in Clayton by buying a house, uh, subdividing to two, uh, we call Battle X Block. Um, you know, the first day I didn't make any money because I was mis- understanding the implication of stamp duty, which were based in Victoria to really, you know, our duty act is notoriously famous for, um, you know, basically charging developers additional stamp duty on all sorts of different arrangements. I think the recently I will go through 
uh, a huge, long, uh, boring meeting with my lawyers just to figure out whether if we assign the option to another party, whether that triggers stem duty or not. I remember I went through various different lawyers firms from the first tier to the second tier. We don't have the straight answer. And every single time it seems like, hey, we're going to get private ruling. So anyway, that's my first deal subdivision, uh, kind of bank, very little, um, but it's almost negligible. But that gave me, you know, that got me into uh, the basics about development process, right? And that process quickly ranking up to three, four, five townhouses at a time. I was hire uh, a very good um, project manager, which is also working a, a project builders firm, and he's happy to work with me on part time to managing sort of process. Uh, and I was just investing some capitals and uh, helping the sales and etc. Now back in those time, I think between 2011 to 2013 or 14, the market condition is different. Like everything sells. I remember, you know, when uh, I was eventually doing the first apartments uh, in Preston, um, about 41 apartments on High Street. We just take through uh, two marketing guys and who one of them, I think they took through to Malaysia and they pre-sold 50 uh, of those um, uh, apartments off the plan in one go. And that was the market. Now, today is very different, right? Uh, our foreign buyers was gone. The government charging a lot of stamp duties, et cetera, and et cetera. And funding, obtaining funding is almost impossible for those foreign buyers. But back then, man, everything's selling very, very quickly. And that, I think I got lucky there as well because, you know, I've got support from the families and I also the exit strategy is kind of like there. The market condition was prime for doing development. And then that really helped me to grow super quickly. And, you know, when you have, when you successfully complete a few projects, exit strategy is great. Bank funding is really easy to obtain once you have equity and exit and there's a profit project. All the ducks line up until um, 2015, I got a call from a bank manager back then in NAB, and he was like, Lay, just be, be mindful that uh, we might looking at to reduce the exposure for the foreign buyers. I don't know like, what you're talking about. Like, you know, at the time, I think it's almost impossible. How come you guys stop leading to foreign buyers uh, all at once? It's going to have a detrimental impact to the market. And anyway, nevertheless, um, in a few months' uh, time, uh, the news came out, you know, Start from major four, stop lending to the for, uh, foreign buyers and followed by the second tier lender, et cetera, until last sort of uh, options out there all close the door. And then I said to my team, you know, we got to change because there's a tipping point where our development model transition from uh, feasibility or profitability to viability. Because back then, there's a lot of old, you know, other friends who are doing or colleagues doing large-scale apartments. And all of the feasibility shows like 25 30% profit cost. Ridiculous at the time, right? The larger the deal is, the more profit it's going to be because the less margin the builder is going to charge. Um, but they're going to hold those, at, you know, hold the site, hold the contract, hold the feasibility without be able to convert into uh, off-the-plan sales. And that's a big, big problem. And I noticed that, and I said to my team, look, we're going to change our strategy. So ever since then, we are looking for a different ways to adapting the change of um, the market condition. A lot of those are initiated by the government policies. And everything since, since then, that's leading to where we were um, to, uh, from, a, I guess, a developer who focused heavily on a project to project, uh, bring a start to end, you know, buy, sell, develop, and then go to the next one, just like many of them, where now start transitioning to more of a, a business structure, which allow us to turn into a systematic approach uh, when it comes to development. And I guess we can share a bit more as we go through the conversation. Um, that's kind of like in, in a nutshell, I don't want to bore you with more details of it, but that's nutshell of me, a simple Chinese students come here uh, with parents support. Uh, and walk his way through and uh, navigate the, all of different ways that uh, uh, we can do in property in Australia and now to become a developer and gradually evolving to all sorts of different uh, related business associated with property. Yeah, so you've primarily done 
townhouses, I think would be fair to say, um, which you continue to do. They just sort of got bigger and bigger or more and more of them and you've just continued to expand the size and number of the projects. Would that be a fair summation? Uh, yes and no. So when we get started, so I started building townhouses when I was like 12 years ago because it was simplistic form. I can buy the site everywhere. Uh, and then, then in about a few years' time, I do transition into apartments. We've actually worked about 67 apartment buildings just in Victoria alone, provided sales are good. Um, and then we also work on all sorts of different things like industrial land estate, uh, residential land subdivision projects. Um, you know, right now in our book, we consist of like, you know, uh, our development pipeline sort of like in this year will be probably be close to a thousand properties that consist of uh, various different things, including the residential landlords, uh, uh, some of uh, townhouses, some of the commercial um, buildings, medical centers, and uh, industrial shades. Um, But to be honest, whether you're developing townhouses, apartments, industrial shades, as a developer, it's all the same as long as you can manage the core process really well. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make that uh, because I think you're right. Once you've done a couple of residential townhouse projects, you realise there's a process to follow regardless of what type of development you're doing. And once you understand or get some advice on what that process is, then you can just follow it. And by that stage, you probably have a, a team of trusted advisors or you know how to find a team to help you to get that project done, which is very different from when you're first starting out because you essentially have almost no idea about how the process works. Yeah, hindsight is pretty powerful in this industry. Speaking of hindsight, looking back at that guy doing his first project back in Clayton 14 or 15 years ago, whatever it is, what do you think now looking back at that guy it's funny you say that. I was uh, actually joking with my wife uh, when we had a holiday last year towards the end. And I was like, look, you know what? Every single year was when I was looking back uh, into what we did a year prior to that. Uh, in, as a part of reflection, I was thinking that every single year we are forced to grow uh, ourselves, not just the experience or not just measured by the profits or the project we do, but in terms of the personal growth uh, from the mental toughness, the relationship we've got, uh, the sophistication we've got, and then also uh, what we do know and compared to back then in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the you know I, I guess 10 years ago, if you asked me the question, like, is this the right strategy? I'll be the guy who, there, who, who sit there and argue with you, look, this is why the way I do it is so brilliantly. And then in 10 years later, I was um, sitting in the room to work on the exact same strategy that I was kind of like tend to work against with in 10 years ago. And it's really, really interesting. And, and which, which kind of like really important to stressing on this factor about a spectrum of a developer, you know, and the different developers work on a different spectrum. Uh, some of those are working on a larger scale. Some of those are working in a smaller scale. Some of those are working in a, what I call absolute profit spectrum, where they, uh, like a wholesaler, uh, take less margin on each property, but really scaling up the volume, where other people is really cutting teeth and, and fine craft their art form and to really banking a, a, a sweet percentage of return. And there's all kind of, um, different type of developers, and it's nothing right or wrong. It's about the uh, identify um, which part of the spectrum did you currently sit on there, and are you happy with it? And if you are happy with it, and then developing the strategies to make it work. If you're not, try to identify where you want to go, and you might need to change your strategy accordingly to get that destination um, a lot more efficiently. So, is that what you'd say is the big difference between lay of today versus lay who was starting out a bit more yeah, so, and flexible in the strategic yeah, thinking absolutely I will, I will give you one example let's say 2022 versus uh 2012 you know i don't think i changed that much personally um you know in t- 2012 10 years ago let's say 
I will be the guy who will be really proud of by showing people how technical I am. I will say, hey, Justin, look at this deal. I've, success- I've successfully negotiated this thing with the landowner, so I don't put anything down. I tied, you know, I tied on the side with development management agreement with fifty percent profit. Look at the at internal rate return. My goodness, two hundred thirty-five percent, amazing, right? And I try to uh, optimize the process a bit more by reducing costs in construction, doing heavy-duty value management, even to you know to talk about, hey, uh, what's the uh, GFA per townhouses, or what's the GFA of, or in itself, the per apartment footprint, uh, to manage that little elements, right? Um, you know, we even, you know, sometimes we even measure and uh, and and the measure and design the marketing funnel when we're selling our projects to tracing the conversion rates and in you know from the inquiry to email, to email, to phone calls, that kind of stuff. I would go for focusing on that. Try to bring the incremental uh, results, incremental benefits. So therefore, collectively, hope it will enhance the bottom line, which is great. Now, back, you know, let's say 2020 version of me, I would probably doesn't really care about that. I would not save the DMV, even though I'm capable of developing, managing my own project. But hey, for various different projects, I start hiring people, paying them a quarter million, uh, for various companies to manage my project, not because they can do things better than I, I am. It's because now I'm start focusing on, on scaling the operation in, and to guess geometrically uh, enhance and increase the business profit and revenue instead of incrementally um, doing bit by bit myself. And the result has been nothing short of, you know, great greatness. Of the last three, four years, has served us really, really well. So, is that something you'd say holds back a lot of smaller developers in that they tend to look and think project to project rather than being a bit more longer term view oriented? Um, it is. I wouldn't say they don't have a longer term view, but I, I do say that if you're looking across, most of developers, they do structure their business based on the current projects, current climate. And therefore, you know, your earning of the current project doesn't equal to the future ones. Um, you know, you're, you know, if you work on, let's say, four projects a year, and that four projects your business. And once the project is gone, and then you're going to start again. But the problem is market conditions always change. Land prices always change, um, you know. So the market condition is always changing, and that's the problem that most developers are caught up in the market cycles. So if the market is good, everyone's happy. <laughs> so it turned, you know, capital growth tends to sort out all of the issues. But the moment credit became tight, interest became expensive, pre pre became slow. Just look at what happened in COVID times. Most of the people start struggle, and when they struggle. They don't have multiple ways out. And a lot of times, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm actually consulting lots of medium to large scale developers. One of the core problems I've seen them to do is they tackle on project and then they don't have any clue about pre-sales. So when the agent didn't perform, they have their investors uh, and it says, hey, we need to we need our money back and it's delayed and you know by a few months here and there. And they force themselves to take a high interest, low pre-sale loan and hoping that on completion you will sell stuff. But when the project is completed, the market's still no good, and you force yourself to take a residual loan uh, for a residual stock loan for even a high interest. Now you've increased your risk by another, you know, how many times. And that's the crazy stuff. Um, so we try to avoiding that. You know, we try to, you know, from what we try to do, we try to make sure that we're not governing that project or project manipulated by the market environment. In fact, we want to make sure we can structure our development process in a way that the it's became a systematic approach, irrespective of what the market condition is. Right, we want to make sure every project we do will be positively enhance our balance sheet, our cash flow. You know the, the the financial statements. We want to make sure that when we sell our development business, we can actually put a proper valuation on it, 
And if you're running four townhouses, the valuation is the feasal. The valuation is the GRV. The valuation is the residual land value. But what if you don't? What if you finish those four townhouses and 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 you start looking for site? Well, you still have your development company. Can we put a valuation on that? Probably no. You know, and that's the problem. And we try to sort out that. And therefore, we've been trying to developing different strategies, uh, different systems, different thought-provoking themes. Try to escape the pitfalls. Uh, of being a traditional developer and to try to become what we say a businessman who approached the development space. So I guess it's the next step and hence relating to where I was talking about, I no longer cares about uh, uh, value management process that much. I still do, but not, not, not in the intensity compared to where it used to be. I start thinking about scaling it. You know, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine. He's really a, a, a a good high schoolmates of mine because I was when I was starting high school I was back you in New York, um, and then he was staying in New York and and obviously he's now working the Wall Street he's managing, uh, he's he's participating in a company they they managing they call four zero one k which is kind of like a superannuation uh, in U, uh, in US, and uh, we got talk with each other right he was like well they charge like two percent management fee I was like man two percent you know, imagine Justin, you and I want to attract investors. It's like, hey, man, 2% return to you. That's crazy, right? But he says he has $2 billion on a management. I was like, 2 billion, 2%. I was like, and I was like, what times 2%, 2 billion? Counting the number of zeros. I was like, holy smokes. You know, you and I might be able to generate 30% return on capital, but the net absolute return. We can be smart, but they work a lot smarter uh, from the strategy point of view. And that's the, the point I want, to, I want to bring is scaling the playing field. Try to start looking for, well, you've got a, a project. How can we put a different pillar, business sort of stuff on top to make sure project is just the playing field, uh, but you have a big, you know, you have a larger sort of like uh, a, a, a stage uh, for you to plug in those projects and how those different projects interact with each other. And uh, if I can share with you, for example, um, in my company right now, every single year, I was buying, we're still doing development stuff. Let's just talk about the development arena itself. We have three different uh, type of category of strategies. So every time we buy development side, it allow us to evaluate analysis analysis the different development side throughout a slightly different lens. Now, for, for an example, now it's February. So start of the year, this year, I would say to my team, we need to get a thousand units, lots of whenever, you know, into our pipeline. And that's all we focus on. Now, when I say we have a development pipeline of a thousand lots, apartments, units, and combination, I really mean that I need to acquiring a development pipeline. Allow me to developing, let's say, a thousand lots. So therefore, all of those projects in that pipeline have certain degree of certainty. Does already be taken care of means that uh, I don't have much worry about the permit process. Means that there's less degree, uh, or I would say. It's not sensitive to how many lots do I get approved or not, right? All of those projects need to fit a criteria. The criteria means that I need to be able to shifting them in record times. And that allows us to really sourcing a site and start finding the, the distribution channel first. Who are the groups are selling uh, the, the properties in a high volume? We need to get in touch with them, what they want, the stuff, what the criteria they need to have. And we need to find affiliation with them and that will inform us where to looking for sites, right? I'm just a developer wholesaler on this end. We don't talk to retail buyers along that end. I was talking to five to six different distribution partners. Each of them have a different requirements of the staff across different states. And then we start sourcing the stuff according to their needs. Now, each group might say, well, we have a monthly sales volume in this area for 30 lots or 40 lots a month. That allowed me to say, right, oh, when I look at a site with permit approved, 
for 200 lots, if I have 40 lots sales volume a month, it just takes me five months to hit the pre-sales. So basically, I will put in the feasibility. I said to the vendor, look, man, uh, I will offer you exactly what you want. I need a six-month settlement, 10% down. Give me 30 days due diligence to sort things out. Um, and then in six-month time, hopefully, we'll be on the ground to dig in the dirt uh, without worrying about additional uh, bridging time, all sorts of what-if scenarios. If you look at that, no permit risk. I pay a premium. Who cares? No exit strategy risk because I've sorted out my exit. How hard is to get the funding? Now, once you sorted out acquisition exit, the next thing is customize your funding arrangement to suits the start and end. And it does not mean I need to get a project stack up to 15%. I can get a, I can do a project if it's 13%. It's not in the word. As I said, it just customizes the funding package to it. The point I want to make is the project fits this category. This is what I call absolute deal model, where we don't focus on profit and cost. We don't focus on cash on cash. We're just focusing on I want certainty. I want my capital in and I want a return within a certain period of time. No what ifs. In exchange, I can accept a lower return in exchange for the certainty. And what I do is I just try to scale this up. And then, you know, so for example, in the old days, if there is a total cost of project is $20 million, you know, at 20%, we would make 20% of it, right? Which is, let's say, $4 million, uh, right? But now, let's say for the same $20 million project, if I can fix the exit strategy, I can fix the funding, I can fix the acquisition, I would say, right, in about 12 months, I will be out of this project. There is no what if, right? The margin for error will probably about two to three months apart, but it's not going to be, you know, structurally damage the project. In return for that, I'm okay to accept $2.5 million profit, you know, in exchange for the quickness and steadiness of the project. But guess what? 2.5, now I no longer do one, I want to do 10. And that 2.5 times 10, $25 million profit is what I focus on. Nothing or no, nothing else on the bottom line. That's what we call absolute deal model. It means that I can buy the sites most people can't. Why? Because it's not profitable to them. Um, I can uh, buy the sites because I know that within this period of time, I will achieve the pre-sales. It's kind of an unfair advantage in a way. And once we got the absolute deal model field, the next step will be working on uh, our good old relative deal model. In relative deal model, I don't use the investor's money, right? In the absolute deal model, sometimes I do. In the relative deal model, I don't. Relative simply means that it's all about return on capital. It's all about internal rate of return. That's where you and I get technical. I don't look at a deal if it's not close to 30% profit and cost. Now, there's not so many deals out there at 30%. Some of those deals require you and I to put some engineering in place to change the planning nature of the site to extract a higher return on costs. But who cares? Because I've got the because I've got the absolute deal model on, on, the, on the bottom end, it gives me the leverage of time to really cherry pick the deal if ever works. If it doesn't, who cares? It does not really matter. I've got a really strong cash flow on the back. And then ultimately to the top is the land banking. And this is where most of developers, and, and I guess the small ones, doesn't really consider is in order for you to have a longevity of a business model, you cannot just doing focusing on doing your current development without worrying about the future land costs. It's about you to think about how can you lock in the cost of land today in reserve for your rights to developing in future. I would say it's okay for you guys to get the site stack up at 40%. Just buy the site today, wait for 17 years, and everything will be fine. And then the problem is how can you buy those sites? How can you afford to hold seven to 10 years? That requires different business strategies. This is what I call arbitrage time. Maybe you can recycle part of your earning by and buying a strategic redevelopment site. Maybe there's a car washer around a corner and you buy buying the site and retain a business and that allow you to, you know, servicing a debt along the way. But hey, the whole thing is DDO8. 
that means allow you to go for 12 levels in future, right? Maybe there's a site that allow you to, instead of doing, you know, for an example, there's a site uh, we're currently doing in Pakenham. Uh, we bought a site for $5.1 million. The permits approved for 26 lots plus a super lot they call medium density. And uh, everyone's looking at it. They can't make it work. And when, I, when we were modern, it was like, it kind of works. Here's why. First and foremost, the super lots, they call medium density. To me, it's a land banking component. Instantly, I changed my strategy. And secondly, I was like, well, 26, let's in, in, increase to 28 lots. So my strategy is, is developing that 28 lots, then holding the super lots uh, with almost not of my capital involving there, right? And then I think, well, what can we do with a super lots that allow me to generate cash flow? So therefore I can hold aside for a long, long time. And we look at the math, we look at the numbers. The answer to us on that side is maybe we can do a childcare play. So we do a childcare play for 110 kids. Um, it works. That simply means for the same amount of work I put in here, instead of bank a few million dollars, now I bank the money, keep the childcare that generate. You know, if I don't operate the business, just talk about the leaseback option. It generated about a quarter million dollars net per annum, and that allowed me to hold the site for a long time. If you're looking at apartments, if you're looking at an old office for three levels, uh, even though the planning might allow you to develop in, in higher rises, but the market is not primed for those high density living at this stage. So instead of doing that, Try to think about, well, how can you use your development knowledge to underdeveloping that bad boy? Maybe it could be at one level, two level on top, do some reconfiguration of the office space and then say, or LSA, that list area, and then to improve the cash flow, allow you to hold the site for a long term to retain the future development potential. So that's what another category where we work on as a land banking thing. And then I guess that's three different category of acquisition mode allow us to assess site different differently and that our commercial modeling is differently our funding assumptions differently all of that allows us to execute deal differently to yield us a slightly different results so is all that related to mindset do you think it's around shifting your mindset and how you think about projects and what they're meant to deliver because i think do you think there's a fair bit of ego involved with property development and developers chasing returns and becomes very important to them? It is. I mean, look, I wouldn't say it's all about mindset, but it definitely, uh, I wouldn't say it's mindset. I think it's a perspective. Uh, uh, it's about perspective about what's possible. You know, like I'll give you an example. The reason I said it's perspective is I'm in cahoots with, uh, with, um, with one guy who's probably the son of a, a very wealthy developer. Their family model, business model, was to buy the site and hold for 20 years and then developing. We talk about high rise in the CBD. And I used to think like, why are you guys in today's market still punching up like 200, 300, 400 apartments in the CBD? No one wants it. And until they tell me, well, they bought the site 20 years ago, <laughs> the site cost them nothing. They don't really care. Uh, it's about a perspective thing. So the first step is really have this awareness on, well, you know, that's the next level. You want to make sure that this is a business-focused um, approach, uh, structure, system-focused approach, instead of being approach a specific developer. And once you are aware of this, and once you put your focus on your structure, how you focus on yourself, means that, hey, how do we plan our development business? in the next five to 10 years. Uh, you can only think about what type of strategy might be suitable. I mean, in terms of developer chase return, it's not the issue of developer to chase return. It's the issue of the, if your current perspective and all you can see about what's possible about a development is to buy a site, put a permit, sell the stuff, get a finance, raise some capital. And the moment you raise capital, of course, you're gonna chase return, otherwise, you how are you going to pay back the investors? You go through this vicious cycle. And I know that it takes one glitch around the whole thing to potentially stuff up some of the good work you've done over the last few years. And, um, and what we try to do is to make sure that every project we do, it's enhance our bank account, 
enhance the cash flow, enhance our borrowing capacity, enhance the asset, which can be properly valued. Now think about this, speaking of perspective. Um, about a few years ago, I was introduced to a site somewhere in Altona, and they want us to, they say, look, we, we've got like 200 also apartments for sale. Do you want to buy it? And I was like, well, it kind of works, but the same thing. Um, how do we secure the pre-sale? And we're looking very, very, very hard until I was introduced to another guy who's working in the retirement village sector. He says, well, that Altona site is actually prime from demographic point of view to suit the retirement village. And ever since then, I learned all the in and outs about how to develop in retirement village. But think about this, same permit for apartment scheme. It takes us about three months to rescheme to a retirement village, simply convert a few apartments to allow for uh, you know, a larger common area with some of dedicated rooms for on-site GP and restaurant, et cetera. Um, three months to convert a permit. And uh, obviously we tap into our financial planners arm and we run in, we tap into some of the uh, referral channel to introduce us to some church, um, to basically running some uh, information about retirement village and et cetera. And the long story short, um, in about probably six months, we secured all of the pre-long lease because in retirement village, there's no sale. It's all the long lease arrangement. So we, we achieved the bulk of the long lease arrange, re, arrangement. We put a funds in place, um, basically the same funds of some of the largest company are assessing right now for build-to-rent projects in Australia. They have the funding us uh, based on long lease arrangement because the most of the banks don't understand long lease and they want pre-sales, but the time of all, you can't do pre-sales. But get this, upon the finish of the construction, we get all of the money back, our principal investment. We repay all of the bank debt. We banked an upfront about 12 to $13 million of development profits. And we retain the building for free. And if you understand the retirement village model, every 10 to 15 years, when the residents move from retirement village to aged care facility and a new residents moving in, we also will bank somewhere around 20 to 30% of value of the asset. We call it deferred management fees. And if you're looking at the overall asset, it's probably worth about 80 to $100 million, 30% every 10 years. That's a hefty, hefty profit. And But that's not about it. If you take things further, just overlay different business ideas on top, for an example, you have an asset that is debt-free. You have an asset that can produce uh, a capitalized income for every 10 years also based on 30% value of that. Why, why don't we just package it up, put into uh, REITs, a public fund to bank a PE ratio? Now there's another intrinsic value that you can extract. It's all start with the development, but you can see how tiny, how irrelevant about the development in the whole thing. And that, that's why I was like, look, we should hire some development managers, pay them well to managing the process uh, chasing the council, chasing the authority, which is not really a policing thing on my, in, in my view, but focusing on the larger picture uh, to work on your funding structure, exit strategy. And you will realize if you spend one, spend time to knocking down building one apartments, and if your strategy is right, perspective is right, allow you tap into the right resource, you probably will be equivalent to people spending time to build five apartments if I do in one retirement village. And that's a difference. And uh, it starts with the perspective, but obviously what else we need, I think perspective is one, your skill sets is another. And I'm not talking about development skill sets, but I talk about other sorts of different type of skill sets about business. Um, you, you know, um, sales marketing is really important. Uh, your skill sets about how the capital markets funding thing works. You know, there's a different ways to get funding from a project. It doesn't need to be pre-sale based funding, right? You know, your capital raising skills, your relationships worth a lot. I always said relationship capital is also very important. You can't do everything yourself. You do need, sometimes it's not about what you know. Sometimes it's about who you know. And I do admit the fact that relationship is very, very important. All of that aligned will basically allow you to, to, to work on something much larger and much more fruitful. Uh, and it's very hard 
to be replicated by other people because it requires so many pillars to support that. So in your experience and talking to lots of different developers and seeing lots of different developers, what would you say holds people back from taking themselves to the next level? Uh, the, the number one uh, reason, there's a few, but number one reason or most common reason is the access, uh, access, ability to access funds, ability to access capital, right? Um, so that's the number one reason, I think. But really, if you talk about capital, you know, what you see is probably is not the same as what I've seen. And I've been constantly, countless on the conversation and with, with different developers, and they're always chasing capital, raising capital. And I was like, dude, I've got the capital. <laughs> I've got too much capital here. I've got too many investments here. I just don't have enough quality project to put them into it. It's kind of like counterintuitive. The more profit a project is, the less capital it requires. You know, that's 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 the thing. That's a fact. So, but nevertheless, the first step is um, access to capital. And uh, what I really mean, it's not the ability to. Uh, it's not the uh, lack of capital, it's the ability to source capital, to, to, to start your process, to align yourself with the source of capital to get your financial impact. You know, think about it in entrepreneur world, uh, you know, when uh, everyone have an idea, we're finding, the first thing we're finding is the angel investor. The angel investor could be our family, could be ourselves. put some money in there, make some prototype, and it will start pitch for the seed capital. That allows us to really uh reinvesting the money to 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 bring uh, uh the next level proof of concept to the market until a certain uh financial hurdles reached we then start raising for series a series b series c and the venture capital start coming in says hey justin your company now is worth a lot i'll give you 30 percent um soft equity we take 70 percent because we inject the fund here's a board you'll be the ceo that's kind of what works now all of those are get financial impact same thing property it's just not for business the first step is really get get your financial impact but you cannot get your financial impact or access the capital without being unique without being able to show other people that you have a sound business uh idea structure or whatever that is worthwhile people's attention to invest in you so but nevertheless you know the first thing is lack of capital and the second thing is lack of uh, tangible strategy you know you know I've, I've also seen a lot of developers they struggle with finding sites i mean not talk about sites a profitable sites right that's the common symptom hey we cannot find any profitable sites or in those suburban suburbs uh, it looks like all of the viable opportunities are gone. <laughs> you know, we cannot find sites, let's say Murumbah, for example, where you focus on. You know, we cannot find sites that is, you know, have, let's say, 4,000 square meters above, you know, and then allow us to buy it uh, with our term and still have 25% profit. It's it just not there. And therefore, you have to change your strategy to make sure that with what we've got, you can make the thing work. Right, it's very, 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 very important. So a strategy is very important. It means that if you keep looking for four thousand square meters, medium density townhouses in those areas, everyone was looking there, and it gets more and more competitive. And if you do have those four thousand, six thousand square meters, mate, those things going to be selling like a hot piece of cake, and your fees is not going to sustain it. You know, unless you're accepting a really low profit. So. Um, yeah, so that's the second thing about a strategy. And then the third thing is, is obviously about the team, your company, what you've got, uh, who you know, um, to driving the capital and opportunity, uh, just like every other business. But the top thing is, I think, is the money. The second thing is the opportunity. But underneath that, if you don't have money, don't have opportunity, underneath that, is a lack of ability to access capital, lack of ability to raise capital. Lack of opportunity means that the lack of ability to analyzing our opportunity. You know, you do realize the side that I've looked at, I might see a different potential than you do. And sometimes you see a different potential than I do. And we work on, for the same sides, we might have a different feasibility, different feasibility, different financial model, you, you, a different results. And sometimes it's much easier to change your financial model for given sides. 
Yes, it's funny that you should say that because I was looking at a industrial site just yesterday and yeah. sent it to a colleague of mine for a chat and some thoughts. And the same thing happened. I said, this is what I'm thinking of doing and with it. And um, he came back with a completely different idea about something that could be done with it that I just had never contemplated. So yeah, the perspectives oh, definitely you, can make oh, a difference. I'll give you one example. Um, two years ago, I was involving with a few guys who are apartment developers. You probably read their names on the news, and I, that's all I can say, based in Victoria. Uh, it's famous. And uh, we workshop um, build to rent strategy. And at the time, he tried to raise some capital from us as well. So anyway, I got listened to what he said. The idea is how, how smart it is. On the media, you might say, well, Justin, you are a developer who start now focusing on build to rent, right? And I was like, how does Justin do that? You know, but on the back of you, you're still a developer. You just change the strategy. So basically what you do is you now pumping up the news as you're focused on build to rent, right? And what you do is you go to your, uh, you know, circle of uh, influence or sphere of influence of people you knew or people who, you know, who might connect you with someone. And you're funding some funds or some significant investor. And you said to them, most of them are overseas based. You said to them, hey, hey, Lay, uh, look, man, you've got, you, you're now 65 years or 70 years old. I have this opportunity right now to allow you to own a completely blue chip uh, landmark building in one of the best locations in Melbourne, in Sydney, uh, and then still bank a positive cash flow at about 10% below the market market means that 10% discount or 15% discount. Are you interested? Now the guy might be saying yes or no, but a lot of time they will say yes because the two those guys they are really cashed up and they're looking for legacy. And a lot of them are doing not doing for themselves, doing their, for their family to see as an asset they can pass generation to generation for whatever the reasons, including tax. Anyway, that group landed two investors who are okay to work with them on this arrangement. So imagine I'm the investor. Here's the deal. I will chip in all of the equity. So if the bank lending you, let's say, 60% LVR on net, realiza net realization, I will lending you 40%, right? Whenever close the capital stack. And the deal will be this. Justin, you will still charge a development management fee, or you can hire someone to pay them. Same thing, whatever charge it. Upon completion, upon completion, you, Justin, takes 10% of the costs as your developer's fee. I now retain the rest of the cost base, but that cost base is going to be significantly lower than the GRV of what the valuation of the building is. I start collecting rents. Now to you, Justin, you're not participating in building rent. You are smartly manipulating the strategy and that's play an arbitrage opportunity to finding one significant investor pitch to the ego for them to be both your equity partner as well as the exit strategy partner. It's almost like you investing in my project. I give you 50% of profit. I take the 50% of profit. and But you also will keep all of the asset. How smart it is. And then I was like, this is a, an arbitrage strategy uh, playing in front of us. In, and I always want to bring that example because it just to me, it was like, well, that's smart. You know, and that's uh, like like what you said, you know, there's a very different strategy and everything is arbitrate, right? In life, if you're not running a business and if we do make a profit, then there's arbitrage. If there's no arbitrage, then there is no profit because we don't add value, right? So in property, which boggling down to this, I always say, and I, we, we, we've uh, exchanged ideas before, I always say, look, there's three level of arbitrages we're playing for each developer. Once again, we draw a pyramid, right? It might seem stodgy. On the bottom of the pyramid, you start with arbitrage of skill. So we talk about good developers, right? Not talk about mom and dad. So arbitrage of skill. In this end, people are very technical. People understand development, you know, very, very well, experienced, they understand construction process, how to cut costs, how to de developing, let's say, a profitable development approval. You know, not all DA are equal, right? So some of those... If you put 20 units, I put 20 units, what might yield different results? 
So we understand that. We understand how the commercial funding works, how to influence the valuation, all sorts of stuff. We understand how to sell. We understand how to sell quicker, everything. But that's arbitrage's skill. You, but however, there is only uh, limits you can go to. Why? You can be the one of the most skillful person I ever know in the development world. But if the market is no good, you cannot turn a debt project into life. You can improve, enhance the profitability or protect the downside of it. But there's only so much you can do. You're just like you're a warrior and you really understand these martial arts, like let's say Bruce Lee. You know, if one-on-one would probably not knock him out. But if I have a gun, I mean, I change the game, right? Which allow me to say the second level is I call arbitrage strategy. Arbitrage strategies allow us to be less skillful, but start playing what are different strategies. For example, same site, you've seen that as an apartment. I've seen that as a hotel. You see this hotel, I see the retirement village. You see this beauty rent, I see it's a wave really hook up with uh, funding and exiting one goal and then taking a 10% costs as my development profit. Uh, you know, that's the, in a different arbitrary strategy. Retirement village is the same thing. You know, some people are working on a split contract, which is kind of the curse word, you know, a develop, development thing. But regardless of that, many years ago, Bailey a group, uh, really have a run for split contract. They are building a legitimate business of the, I think, a few years became one of the largest suburban developers. Um, you know, that's the arbitrary strategy to play. You and I look at a fees of townhouses, they look at fees of land estate, land, land fees. We put our timeline for 12 month construction, they put their timeline on three months. I mean, the whole the funding arrangement is completely different. Then all the way up is the arbitrage time. Arbitrage time is you and I will buy a strategic redevelopment side by using our arbitrage strategy skills to increase the value of their site for one result and one result only, cash flow. And I not mean positive, I mean meaningful cash flow, means 200, 300, 500, $600,000 per annum net that allow us to enjoy the money, to allow us to pay down the debt of the site. So in 10 years time, we own those sites freehold and you and I can decide to developing whenever we want we can sell this, we can join venture with other developers, we can we can still running that as a positive cash flow side and we can travel and whenever. And that's to me is the sweet spot that most people want to be. Because ultimately who control the development business is the landowner. And in these cases, you just want to be that landowner, except now you're very educated on here, right? And and I I, I think I used to, you know, back to the first question 10 years ago, I'm the guy who walking up the ladder from the arbitrator skill. Now, every deal I look, I start from the top because once you start from top, everything became a lot easier, a lot easier. And hence why, you know, in the arbitrator time arrangement, you know, we are investing in caravan park. A lot of people think we are specialists. We're not, we're just focusing on the land. We don't buy every caravan parks. We only buy caravan parks in the metropolitan area with the underlying zoning allow us to immediately developing the stuff, but we choose not to, right? We've got retirement villages, we've got childcare play, you know, we've got all sorts of different things, including the share office in South Melbourne, but we can really build in 12 levels anytime we want uh, by obtaining a permit, but we choose not to. Every single asset, let's say a child, you know, a, a caravan park would net us five or $600,000 net a year, and if you have those assets, you have 10 or 20 of those assets, you see your development strategy very differently because your cash flows are very different. I was joking with another client of mine. I was like, look, if you have one caravan park, right? And I would just talk about example or one asset that generates $600,000 a year net after all expenses, you can choose to pay down the asset, you know, reduce the debt, or you can choose to wait maybe three years once we have $1.8 million cash flow, we just go somewhere to say, hey, Mr. Vendor, 1.8 cash, buy the land. And that might be turning that into 45 townhouses. Who cares? We don't have the risk. Why? Land is no risk. Guess what? One month, let's say 12 months pass by, you've got your permit, you start, you are ready to construction. Well, that asset dropped you another $600,000. It became 
really, really, uh, you know, enhancing, uh, uh, self-enhancing uh, uh, process uh, that has improved your balance sheet, improved your cash flow. And then guess what? Once your playing field start growing, your relationship capital will be improving. You know, agents start ringing you for this opportunity before everyone else's mortgaging position opportunities start lending your desk before everyone because they know you can close quickly. Um, and then everything works. And this is what we do right now. You know, most of the time, it, most of the projects I think we're running right now are not even on the market, but we achieve sales on a consistent sales on a weekly uh, volume. And we do know once those projects finish, we have an understanding on how to recycle those equity once the, once let's say income tax are paid to either the arbitrage of time, which is land banking, or arbitrage strategy, which allow us to have that relative return model. Sounds awesome. We're getting $600,000 uh, returns each year from an asset. I'm sure many listeners out there would happily take that. <laughs> now, I think you've been talking about um, a partnership program or taking on board um, people or experienced developers, aspiring uh, developers who want to take it to the next level. I think you've been talking about uh, partnering with people who might uh, be suitable, who might be interested in doing stuff like this with you. Yeah. So for lack of a better word, we call it partnership program. Uh, it's really simple. Two years ago, um, you know, we, we, we modeled this out and we was like, well, I, I think what, what could happen if we create a program just servicing the experienced developers, because there's a lot of other providers out there, including you, are educating developers, right? And I was like, I'm wondering what can we do to take those developers who are experienced, know what they're doing to the next level by overlaying what we know the best around the business world um, to overlaying our ability to access capital, uh, the deal structure to their needs means that most of the developers would have the arbitrage of skill. Now let's work on the strategy and ideally work on their time. And the idea works like this because, you know, uh, my interface to the development start slightly changed in the last three years. As I say, the spectrum, I'm now focusing 80% of my energy on uh, arbitrage of time, land banking thing. And in order to create arbitrage of time, I need a multiple business, right? Running Caravan Park, it's not a part-time business it's a it's a full-time like a, sometimes you know if you have a lot of a lot of short-term accommodation it's almost like running a motel thing right and uh and but then i looking at my development you know our interface to the to, to the development phase i was like look we've got these amazing resources uh means whether it will be intellectual capital relationship capital uh as well as you know, we have some spare capital sits into a proper equity fund that we are okay to funding our client's job, assuming they can bring a project in the exact same fashion that I wanted. Uh, so it's a big risk from, from, from the outset. I was like wondering if I can train them to put my relationship, put my capital, put my strategy to the, ex to the existing solid form they already built and I'm wondering what can come out of it. And then, so, you know, about 18 months ago, we did a little bit test run uh, for that. And uh, the result has been very positive so far. We've learned a heaps as well. We've, we find, we've learned a heaps in terms of what the particular type of clients we want to uh, attract. Uh, so therefore, who can really get the best benefit means that I'm not, you know, ultimately, I don't want to attract a client that, uh, hey, I'll do everything for you. That's not how it is. It's about me to put my thoughts in here and it says, Justin, Here's the next step. If you're doing, let's say, uh, 40 townhouses a uh, year, and let's work on 40 settlements a month. And if you do that, here's a strategy. Here's how we're looking for site. Here's the profile margin we work on. Here's the funding model. And if you do need the ability for us to access the equity, we can invest in equity as well. We work around a profit share arrangement. And, uh, you know, you can call it as a partnership program or, private client experience. It's about me to see the game as you see it, understand you, and for us to work out an, an outcome. And then we start bridging the gap, whether it will be intellectual capacity, capital, financial capital, relationship capital, 
or anything. And sometimes we're just bridging those and you just execute and we share the profits along the line. Along the line. That's in a nutshell about what it is. So if there's someone out there listening who thinks I'm interested in doing that, what should they do? How do they get in well, touch? Yeah, look, if you guys are interested in what you do, get in touch with Justin, send an email to him, and then I guess Justin will probably have an initial chat with you. And if you can, if you think it's a fit, we'll pick it for a session just to see uh, whether we can work something out um, in a mutually beneficial manner. All right. Well, my email's Justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com for anyone that <laughs> might be interested in getting in touch with Lay. Um, while you were talking about running caravan parks, I had this picture of you in a pair of blue overalls lay going around and uh, emptying all the all the things from the caravans, but I don't think that's what you do. <laughs> well, sometimes I do that, uh, just keep it grounded. <laughs> uh, now, what would you say is the top piece of advice you've ever been given yeah look i think the best advice and my advice to to other people is always changing but i think whenever you do try to start with a higher elevated standpoint of view and i in, in my company i call godfather view if you can sit at a such an elevated standing point and looking at a whole landscape about what's possible allow you to have a, such an unfair advantage when it comes to pitching capital partners, uh, turning deals around because you're just completely operating into a different horizon. That's probably my best advice. And I know it might sound, sometimes it might sound too general, but I, I really mean it. All right. And if people want to find out more about you and about Priya, have you got a website? I've never actually... Uh, well, I do have a website, but that was super outdated. <laughs> and all of the information on there is probably irrelevant, but regardless, you can head to priya.com.au and that's my website. Very good. Well, uh, any parting comments, Lay, before we wrap things up? No, I'm, I'm, look, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to connect with you. I think you're a very smart man. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to probably catch up with you in future and knowing more about what you do. And by all means, if you think this is valuable and I'm happy to jump on a show anytime, should you want to expand anything we do in future. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's been awesome having you on the show. Really appreciated your insights and your conversations. It's been it's one that we haven't had before about how you elevate yourself and really I, I talk a lot about taking your business to the next level or doing things that can take your business to the next level, but I really think it's valuable having these conversations around moving just beyond taking it to the next level and having that really big picture view of where you could possibly go because quite often I think people undersell or underthink what they could actually achieve with a bit of help and guidance along the way. So it's been really good to have a chat with you about your humble beginnings as a townhouse developer to where you've got to today. It's been uh, really fantastic to talk with you. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me and I'm looking forward to speak to you guys soon in future. All right, Lay. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.